The subject for the evening talk is the unexpected. Quite often our day-to-day circumstances and our existence goes along at a rather all-too-familiar rhythm. And in that we move from one day to the next and perhaps there isn't a great deal to distinguish yesterday from today and today uh, from tomorrow. And the difficulty uh, with that is of course the impact on the psyche, on our inner life, is that it can generate and produce a certain kind of dullness or blandness through not through routine, but through the interpretation of one day to the next in routine terms, in a routine language. And so wherever uh, you and I experience a somewhat similarity of yesterday to today and the expectation of today until tomorrow, mind can form its tendencies, form its patterns and move in and through them and get unusually used to them. And in getting used to them, one can identify with them, cling to them, and feel a great deal of difficulty in dealing with the unexpected, in dealing with sudden change, because it disrupts what we have assumed to be. And life easily can be one of continuity of the same, um, mind becoming fixated and conditioned in a particular way, and then something can happen from within or without which shakes up that rhythm, that cycle, that pattern that we, we know. And just recently I heard um, two stories on um, my uh, trip to the Middle East, and both of them, in rather direct and alarming terms, express what I mean in terms of the impact of the unexpected. And a friend, uh, Dan, um, an Israeli, um, picked me up at uh, Tel Aviv airport, and while driving from the airport to uh, Jerusalem, he was telling me the situation of his mother some months previously who uh, regularly in Jerusalem uh, drives uh, to work and in February for the first time she decided to take a bus rather than use the car and she boarded the number 18 bus and when the bus poured in to the bus station uh, in Jerusalem, there was a Hamas terrorist on the bus and he detonated a bomb and a number of people, not her, but a number of other people on the same bus that she was on uh, was killed, including the person sitting uh, next to her. She was uh, severely cut up, she uh, was deaf for uh, several weeks due to the impact of the explosion and 
the tragedy and the ironic twist of circumstances for many who must have wondered, who survived such a terror, must have wondered to themselves, you know, what was it, how was it that I ended up boarding this particular bus on this particular day? And for her, it was the first time she'd ever decided to go by a bus because of the tremendous traffic problems that are, are, in, are in the city. <coughs> and while um, giving teachings in Jerusalem, one of the women who was there, she said to me, she said to me that <coughs> her friend from the university was also uh, on that bus. He was killed and he was a strong supporter of uh, Palestinian rights and had in his room in the university a large Palestinian flag to stating very directly and openly his support for Palestinians and he died through the Palestinian terrorists, through a Hamas terrorist. And when I was on the West Bank working with um, um, young people, mostly aged from 20 to 25, who potentially can be leaders within their uh, commu- community. And one evening, we went from the, uh, the village to visit one young person. And those of you who are 20 or 20 to 25, or can still remember what one was like between the ages of 20 to 25. One realizes over the years nothing much has, uh, has changed. And we got into this uh, rather battered old German car that five young Palestinians and uh, myself about 11 o'clock at night and then zoomed off uh, there and they were playing rock music in the car as loud as one can imagine. And, um, and it was um, Joe Cocker's, um, uh, Joe Cocker's uh, Summer in the City. And so while zooming around the, 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 uh, the village and through the, through the ne- nearby town to find uh, uh, this friend of, of theirs, and these young men had all been, as it were, schooled in the uh, dramatic period with ongoing drama of the uh, Intifada, the stone-throwing era which went on for several uh, years. And one of them, uh, a young guy named Sade, who was 22 years old now, and four years ago he was at one end of his street where he lived, organizing a demonstration, and for five uh, Israeli soldiers and, uh, and jeeps were at the other end of the street. And then several um, uh, Israeli soldiers, not in uh, uniform, came down the street. Um, and in arriving there, he didn't realize he thought they were local people, thought they were Palestinians, and, and heard, his, heard them speaking in Hebrew. And one of them pulled out a... Uh, uh, a revolver, and with this young guy it said, shot him five times, and then they and they went, went off these five undercover uh, soldiers. Two bullets in the back, one right in the spine, um, one raised across the cheek, and two in the chest. And they 
took him to the hospital, and of course nearly dead, in a coma, nearly through loss of blood. Then after a number of days, the hospital in Jerusalem refused to have him because he'd been shot, and therefore he was suspicious, so they had to be taken out of the hospital, they had to find another hospital. And in talking with him, now he's at the age of 22, he's uh, uh, in a wheelchair, and uh, his, so the, the, the bullet holes in there, and the scars and the bullet holes in his body. And in the flash of a moment of change, there's uh, a life which is full, athletic, he's an incredibly uh, lovely young guy with a kind of... Uh, the thought came into my mind, Richard Gere, good looks and now he's in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Utterly uh, unexpected. And one would have thought, given the circumstances, there could be tremendous rage, tremendous uh, anger, which takes place in those kind of situations, and yet, amidst all of that, remarkably committed to, uh, to change, to justice, and to the use of non-violent means, and a whole different approach finding ways for security, mutual security for two peoples at loggerheads with each other, to say the, to say the least. And I just used the two examples um, there, the Palestinian and Guy and his Israeli uh, mother, who, upon the impact of conflict, something unexpected happens, and forevermore their life is altered as many, many other lives are, are altered. And the impact of all of that and other circumstances in your and my life sometimes generates and produces out of it a kind of waking up and of the significance of things. And Dan's mother was asked by Israeli television, since you've just suffered and are suffering, she was asked in hospital, so much because of this this, this bomb on, on the bus, um, do you still believe in the peace process? Is the peace process still viable? And she said, yes, even despite of all of this, and despite this, this attack, I still believe in the peace process. When she went home, she had abusive, threatening calls on her answering machine from the extremists, Israeli extremists. So sometimes there's an impact of a situation, utterly unexpected, there's a, there's a change, there's still a keeping faith with something which one regards as important and meaningful, and still, of course, can generate rage and opposition from others, both uh, near, near, and, near and far. And there are rather more dramatic situations, and hopefully more dramatic than you and I will know in, in uh, our, our life. But Sometimes the metal of our awareness and the metal of our wisdom in life is some degree tested by the unexpected, by the unfamiliar, which obliges us or pushes us into circumstances <coughs> in life which we haven't organized, uh, organized, which we haven't planned, haven't prepared, haven't thought about, before, and suddenly consciousness is propelled into something new and having to deal with it. And as the, the Buddha commented, in such situations, he said, surely, he said, the gold 
and the validity of the gold is tested in the fire, is, de- is tested in the heat. Sometimes, in easier, more kind circumstances and in softer circumstances which arise in uh, day- day-to-day uh, life, there's something which, ar- which is arising through us and it's affecting us and we sense somehow that it's the uh, uh, coming to be of the old and the number of you, one-to-ones and today in the larger, larger group directly and indirectly referring to this meaning that the silence and stillness and awarenesses generates a certain kind of space and in that space which is uh, uh, generated it allows a kind of inner movement of the old to impact upon the present and that can show itself in numerous ways strong enough, as what two of you said to wake one up in the, in the middle of the night to feel quite uh, disturbed and agitated sometimes affecting one's um, temporarily one's health headache or or stomach upset or feeling out of order in oneself and there's a space, from that space there's a fruition of the old the old is coming through having some impact upon consciousness called in Eastern language the fruit of karma and in the impact that's going on for us whatever it might be Uh, in the present, the primary wish when something is going on which is difficult, unresolved, unclear and uncertain, the primary wish in all of that is for it to stop. The intensity of the degree tends to invite easily a stronger response for it to be over with. So the stronger the pain, the stronger the confusion, the stronger the agitation, the stronger the fruit of old karma, then with it goes a parallel response inside, I want this to stop, I want to be free of this, I want to be over, I want to feel much better about myself, or or whatever it might be. (coughs) The wanting doesn't help. If we have somewhere or another, we have to understand that with ourselves rather well and rather clearly and that the wanting is part of the product of the agitation and even we say of course to our mind and to others I wish this, I wish I felt better, I wish this was over, I wish this was clear, I wish I felt whatever it might be and it seems like that the, 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 the wanting is an independent statement about the unpleasant experience which I am having, whoever the I is. But in fact, the wanting for it to be over and to be finished with is part of the fruit. It goes with it. It comes with the unpleasantness. It comes with the pain and the difficulty that one wishes it was something else. And it's not separate from that movement, so to speak, of past into present. When that's going on inside of us, we often feel that there are lots of decisions which we have to make. 
And if you have noticed in your uh, life a few times, when one says, I've got really big decisions to make in my life, it's usually a way of saying, I've got a real lot of confusion in my life, and therefore I've got a big decision to make. And one thinks that the big decision, again, is a kind of independent, objective fact about one's situation. But big decisions are are related to big movements of mind. The bigger the movement, the bigger the problem, the bigger the problem, the bigger the idea of the resolution. And we use with ourselves and with each other the um, uh, measurement of size a great deal about anything. And anything can become a really big thing to have to deal with. Who on earth is so bold as to say that it's big? Anything. From what's the perspective that we say something is big? And then sometimes we look at ourselves and then we say, well, compared to the number 18 bus ride, what have I got to complain about? Compared to being on a street and organizing some leaflets and demonstration and someone coming up to me and putting five bullets in me, what have I got to complain about? And then they could say, well, compared to what's going on in Shetsmanitsa in the last year or two with mass graves and, 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 and unbelievable obscenity, obscene acts, etc., etc., whatever it might be. Or we, we can keep using the language of scale completely again and again. And when we just come back to ourselves and our own circumstances, in life, as I say, decisions seem to matter when there's a lot going on in our life. And somehow, when there isn't a lot going on in our life, and I'm not talking about being numb or dull, lifeless creature, it's as though decisions matter less and life is unfolding and revealing itself. And somewhere in all of that, it seems to me some area worth reflecting on about what one is making of decisions. What is it, what's the decision based from? What does it actually come from? And quite often, of course, yeah, I think most decisions are made um, after the event. You think about most things of life which mattered to you. And then it's happened, one has left, one has gone, one has moved on, and then afterwards one's told one's various friends and associates and oneself, well, I made the decision. One never made the decision at all. Just the force of life, the movement of life, the expression of life uh, took place, and then afterwards one said, I made the decision. So most decisions are made after the event. And because when we actually stop, even just in meditation, and try to notice at what point one made the decision to move. Was it when the thought arose? Well, when the thought arose, why did the body stay still? Was it when the, when the, 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 the hand started moving? Where, where's the decision going? Where, where? So sometimes in just slowing down and 
and being a little bit more refined and subtle, even the obvious can get questioned a little bit. Maybe life is unfolding itself in a more impersonal way than what we realize and appreciate. And it's just the need of the self to say, I decide, I choose. Maybe, maybe, I'm just opening up, not making an absolute statement out of it, though I'm getting near to it, (laughs) is that there's just a movement which is going on. And the self likes to feel it's in control of the movement. It's the chooser. It's the decider, or whatever. And surely there is enough unexpected events going on in our life from one day to the next to really show the minimal degree of influence that I have on existence. Surely there's enough unexpected going on even with our ordinary and rather pathetic instantly forgettable little lives which show how little self has control over it. And yet self is just so keen on I'm in charge, I'm in control, I choose, I decide and multiple unexpected going on through the day make a joke of self. Make it a farce. One can't hardly organise a sitting meditation (laughs) for the mind to cooperate for ten seconds. Be honest. (laughs) Some of you haven't found your nose yet, let alone your breath. (laughs) So one sits in and thinks, well, I'm going to choose now to be with my breathing. (laughs) And mind says, oh, what a bet. (laughs) So the eye comes in with its claims and the expression and the unfoldment is a different story altogether. And therefore the use of I and and self is rendered a little bit redundant by the movement in the impersonal terms of the expression of life, the movement of life, the revelation of, of, of life. And yet we pin rather naively and foolishly so much on the self, on the power of self, rather than the awareness of the impersonal movement of life and staying authentic and connected, so to speak, and true with that. In the the, uh, unexpected, sometimes the unexpected can come in uh, fairly uh, dramatic or explosive uh, terms. And and that might come through an altered state of consciousness, that might come through a sudden insight, it might come through a sudden realization and uh, apprehension in a way which one hasn't looked at things before. And here, of course, we're endeavoring to maximize our receptivity, to look more carefully, not to be moving in spite of timetable and everything, in kind of conditioned pattern, to actually be really receptive. And sometimes that movement and those insights can shake up one's whole uh, existence. 
And certainly over the years of uh, Dharma teaching, many people have come and sat on retreat. And some uh, are in it. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s or whatever and something has happened in the course of the uh, retreat and there's been some kind of waking up and uh, opening up in one way or the other and the person has said with quite some uh, degree of sensitivity and uh, authority the rest of my life or sorry, the, uh, before this moment all that went before in my life has been a complete waste of time. And, and that can happen for people in uh, any area and, and in any, any kind of uh, activity. There can be a change and a point and a shift in consciousness quite unexpectedly. And it forces one to look back over the years and say, my goodness, I've wasted half my life. And it can be quite uh, sobering, of course, and uh, disturbing, but also quite, quite freeing as well in looking back over something and having the, the honesty to say that. And in speaking about this with, um, in, uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem with uh, Israeli, um, Israeli friends, I quoted the uh, uh, example of uh, a monk that I knew, Thai monk, who had made a commitment to spend 20 years in a cave. And it was in the jungle in Chumpong, it's Tung Tong, rather, in the southern part of Thailand. Didn't see anybody. Would just leave the cave in the morning, had his begging bowl hanging from a branch. These people would come, put the food in, they would leave, then he would come, pick his bowl up and go back to his, his cave. And after he'd been in the cave for 19 and a half years, he got piles. Very, um, you know, pretty painful. Not uncommon with monks, by the way. They do a lot of sitting. You can understand it. And when he didn't turn up for the food, the village people knew there was something wrong, and went to the cave to find out why. And, and so he just did this period of nineteen and a half years, and left the cave and went to hospital and had treatment, etc. And then he got exposed to some books, in fact, by uh, uh, Krishnamurti, the late uh, Indian teacher and philosopher. And he told the monks, he went to Ajahn Buddhadasa's forest monastery, it's the monastery where I had lived, and he said to the monks, who were, you know, quite impressed, you know, monks, you know, is a kind of, living in a cave is a kind of penthouse suite of, of monks' desires, and he said to the monks that this 19 and a half years in the cave was a complete waste of time. And they were extraordinarily impressed, firstly, that he did it, and secondly, he was open enough to admit it was a waste of time. And so he got the sadhus, the well said, the well said, there. 
So, in speaking about uh, this a few days ago, I said, well, one hears that quite regularly. Somebody says, I was in this job for 27 years, and it was a complete waste of time. I was in this relationship, and it, and it was a complete waste of time. I was in this house, I was in this, I was in that. And sometimes the shock of the old, and in the break of it, doesn't mean to say that the impact stops. And therefore, with change, I was speaking last night, with change, one says, okay, I made the change, whatever it, if one needs to make the change. And then there's the fruit. And the fruit comes sometimes crashing upon consciousness. And one has to hang in with that, as I said yesterday evening, and stay steady with that, because that easily means the space has been made for that to happen there. So sometimes we think of change in those examples uh, of, of the unexpected that uh, come to us. But sometimes it's not making change in our world that we live in, job, role, etc. And as um, uh, Lao Tzu once uh, comment, commented, to know the true nature of things, we don't have to uh, step outside of our front door. So sometimes when we think of change, we think in the, the outer expression of it, going on in our life, but also there's those expressions of inner change even while the routine stays, even while the work stays, or the relationship stays, the location where one lives stays, and one just stays constant outwardly in a particular place, environment, group of people or whatever there, and there might be a certain comfort with all of that, providing nothing dramatic happens to shake it up. And there are people who seemingly live relatively, in this world, stable lives throughout their life, and nothing dramatic going on in it. And I was speaking to one of my um, uh, neighbours in the street where I live, and walking up the road with him, he said, for the past 32 years, from Monday to Saturday, he has walked up Dennis Road, which is the street, the uh, cul-de-sac street, 56 houses in it, up Dennis Road, up Mordring Road, to Totnes High Street, started work at 9 o'clock in the photographer's shop at the top of the street, come home for lunch at 1 o'clock, gone back at 2 o'clock, finished at 5.30 and on Saturday mornings. Five days a week, six days a week, 32 years, unbroken. Same house, same wife, same street, same job. Quiet, nice, lovely human, human being and no wish to go anywhere else. No wish to do anything else. I was in Woolworth and I was saying to a friend of mine, I was on a school bus with, my, with the parents on a school bus trip for the school and the parent who was sitting next to me said, she said, you know, I'm 
38 years old and I've never been to London in my life. And, uh, and she knew a bit about me and I've been to London and one or two other places. And, <laughs> and we were comparing notes and I was telling a friend this and the shop assistant who was in her 50s overheard this conversation in Woolworth and she said, so what? I've never been to London either and I can't imagine anybody who would even want to go there. <laughs> and sometimes, and particularly in the hall here, most of us have been away, have done a little travelling and, and can assume certain things about the uh, unexpected in going from A to B from C to D, etc. But there are lots of people, lots and lots of people, for whom that's not in their worldview at all. And, the, and there's, no, there's no wish. A friend of mine is a carpenter, and he said to me, I, 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 he said, I just saw my son. He was in Totnes. He said, I just saw my son. His son's about 25 years of age. And I said, oh, uh, and I said, oh, haven't, haven't you seen him for a while? He said, no, he said, well, actually, I haven't seen him for about um, 18 months. I said, oh, I said, where does he live? He says, about four miles up the road. This <laughs> is son, 25 years old, hadn't seen him for 18 months and hadn't given it a thought. Just normal type of conversation. Some of us would listen to that and say, my God, talk about distance and alienation between parents and, and uh, children. And so, there's the sun comes and it's, it's unexpected. So, usually these are just small illustrations and examples of, of life, that there's the outer forms of change and the unexpected which comes to us. And for some, there's no outer pursuit of something new or something different. No interest to go to London. Two hours, 40 minutes, 45 minutes on the train. And so all of that's outer. The Buddha speaks a lot about this, about the outer, the outer appearance, the outer world, the outer show of things. And for some, as Lao Tzu said himself, for some, nothing to do with the outer at all in life. It's to do with the way the inner views the outer. And that way that the inner uh, views the outer makes all the difference. What kind of relationship to that do we have? So sometimes, as, as uh, we know in the retreat, some of you are, are making and in the process of making changes to the outer. Some by choice, very much in quotation marks there, and very small choice letters, you know, kind of seven point typeface, you know what I mean? And some by choice. And, um, and sometimes by the push and the pull of the circumstances. But very, very quickly, if there isn't change in the inner as well, the outer can change, it can be new, it can be fresh, it can be exciting, exhilarating, um, stimulating, because it's new, it's the honeymoon period. And but the old and the inner and the relationship starts to creep back 
So just as one says, I've got rid of this issue, this problem, this difficulty, I've made these changes in my life, I've, 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 I've dealt with the, the karma fruit, that the change, for some, not all, brings the impact, I've had to work my way through all that, and the agitation and the difficulty, I've got a clear space inside, I'm receptive to something new, I'm participating uh, in all that, I'm glad perhaps of, of all of that, but not to underestimate the potency of habit. And a few people, a few friends that have said over the years that they made a change and started something fresh and new and then time has gone by and then the thought has come, my goodness, I've come full circle. It's just like it was five years ago or ten years ago. And then one begins to look again to make the outer change and forgetting something about the perception of things matter. Something about the, you, the way you and I look at things matter. And we have an extraordinary tendency to say it's the things which count, it's the things which make the difference. The looking makes the real difference. Not the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch. Not the new itself makes the great difference. But it's the way of looking. And sometimes that way of looking means that we've got to sense what is a way of looking which is, for some things, completely unfamiliar to me. Completely unfamiliar. Which I just don't normally look at or look in that way. I'll give an give a, 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 um, example born out of uh, one of the one-to-ones today. Sometimes in the heart, in uh, these kind of um, explorations and inquiries that take place, the heart uh, yearns, uh, longs for something, to say, greater than self deep yearning which is taking place. And that yearning may have a kind of language which goes along with it. The la- might be the language of yearning for God. Yearning to know the truth of things. Yearning to realize the Buddha nature. Yearning for enlightenment. Yearning for freedom or whatever. And wherever there is a yearning, the wish in the yearning that's taking place is to reach the end of the yearning. One's yearning has been with one in varying degrees and varying intensities. One knows that that yearning isn't just a a mental idea, it isn't just an occasional thought, but there's a deep wish, a deep aspiration. Now the ordinary way of looking at that yearning is to say to oneself, in various ways, when I find the truth, when I realize freedom of life, when I end the problem of life, or when I find God, or whatever language or non-language that one uh, uses, then this yearning, which is there and has moved me in my life in different uh, ways, will come to its end. So the ordinary mind 
And the ordinary feeling and thought that goes with it is one has to end in all, as a proof of the realization of the other. I find God, then my yearning stops. Yeah, ordinary mind, ordinary mind. So one put, sets one thing up against the other. And there are people, very sincere, very deeply committed to all these explorations and inquiries, who, in their humanness, in a way, carry the yearning from, through life, through retreat, through, through existence, and tend, easily enough, to see the um, yearning sometimes as a problem, sometimes as a, a difficult thing to have to deal with, and sometimes only a means to come to the end of the yearning. Maybe the yearning and that what is yearning being yearned for, however, for some it might be formulated, for others this may not be an area, may not be in opposition at all. Maybe God and the yearning are simultaneous. Maybe liberation and the yearning uh, go together as comfortably and easily as wood and the trees go together. For ordinary moments they are yearn for, therefore there is a gap between who I am and what I yearn for. And then all the difficulty and exploration to try to end that gap. But maybe there isn't any. Maybe the yearning is natural life unfolding itself and the yearning and the truth are not separate from each other. Yearning and freedom are actually of the same material. And sometimes we hear these things and uh, you think, what on earth is this guy talking about? Or whatever. Or then the mind goes to a Mahayana text and the Buddha said, um, I achieved absolutely nothing from complete unexcelled enlightenment. This is one of the greatest statements ever uttered in the history of humanity. I achieved absolutely nothing from complete unexcelled enlightenment. And all in mind goes, Whoa! <laughs> What's that all about? And it can all seem very terribly, terribly, terribly far away. But contemplative nature, which is the depth of human beingness there, that, as I say, maybe there is no gap between the yearning and its fulfillment. And therefore the yearning doesn't have to go. It is not a problem. It's just a movement and expression of the human heart. It's a statement of the freedom of the heart itself to yearn. And therefore, yearning and liberation coexist beautifully together. Well, that is opportunity to be understood well and clearly, well and clearly in life. So that we don't see the events of our mind as any kind of obstruction. Just 
events of life, impersonal life unfolding itself. All of that is in reconnecting and rediscovering the nature of the here and now so that the sense of presence and discovery start to go together. Sense of presence and discovery start to go together. And it's a sure sign for all of us if you are thinking about something in the same way it's a sure sign you're off track. So sure, if I'm just thinking, going along the same way, same way, repeating itself, repeating it, 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 it itself about the same problem, the same issue, so sh- and it's not getting resolved through, through that, then one must acknowledge to oneself and, and needs the humility of awareness to say, this way of relating is leading me up the garden path. It's useless it's a waste of time, it's not going uh, anywhere, so my known way of relating is unhelpful. What would it be to look at a situation utterly different from my normal conditioned way of looking? And I just gave you one example of yearning and liberation not being separate from each other. What would it be? To so sometimes you have to stop we have to just ask ourselves, what would be a completely unfamiliar way of looking? And then listen well and listen deeply. And if we've got enough, not too much, but just enough calmness of being, and enough relaxation, and enough sense of presence here and now, then we can afford to ask ourselves, what's a completely fresh way to look at this situation, which is quite unfamiliar to me? And in my unfamiliarity, maybe the unexpected will come through and it will be clear and obvious. And we'll see the joy and the wisdom of it. And so it seems like everyday truths are not so easy and familiar to everyday mind. And therefore the non-everyday mind is a big space with plenty of opportunity realization and for the unexpected to shine through. May all beings live with clarity or may all beings be free to inquire. May all beings be liberated. So let's have a couple of uh, quiet minutes, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.